Hello, we are back. My name is Henry Griffin. I'm here with Jonathan Freelich and Bob Freelich, and we are here to talk about and really revisit a movie that meant something to at least one of us, figure out what it is that makes it go. And I picked the movie for this week, reviewing Morvern Kalar, which is the second feature film uh, co-written and directed by the Scottish director Lynn Ramsey, who is a fantastic director, um, who her first three films played at the Cannes Film Festival and won prizes, and her first film, Rat Catcher, is pretty spectacular. And this second film, on the two cents, we need to talk about Kevin and the upcoming uh, You Were Never Really Here, are all literary adaptations. This is an adaptation of a Scottish novel by Alan Warner from the 90s that's sort of of the same generation as Ryan Welsh's Train Spotting. Um, and so it's a lot like the book, but at the same time, it's also a movie of its own. Um, I guess I could give a quick thumbnail of what happens in the movie. It's the story of the eponymous woman. Her name is Morvern. Her last name is Callar. And uh, the movie and book both start with her waking up next to the corpse of her boyfriend who has committed suicide. And he leaves specific instructions as to what to do, at, including taking the money he has in the bank and using it to stage his funeral and to take a novel that he has on the computer and to print it and submit it for publication so that he can be recognized posthumously. Uh, and he leaves a suicide note in which he encourages her to be brave. And what makes it a story is that she doesn't do anything that he asks her to. And she goes on starting by concealing his death by saying he's left her uh, and by putting her name on the manuscript that he left as his own and trying uh, successfully to get this novel published. Uh, and in doing so, she takes the money that he left for his funeral and goes off on a mad holiday to Spain with her best friend, Lana, uh, and sort of evades the uh, responsibilities that he's left her with. And that's really about as much of a plot as I could give you. What do they leave out? He cut, she cuts him up. Oh, you know. And she puts him in the bathtub, cuts him up, and hides his body in pieces in the woods. There is the small matter of the body, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, she takes his suicide and uh, uh, cuts him up and buries him in a field, but basically makes the man who died uh, disappear uh, and sort of sort of makes her problem go away. The movie is really about a woman who makes a series of decisions that are all sort of the opposite of what we would call common sense and really does the opposite of what uh, I guess you'd almost say a normal person would do because she's not uh, your standard protagonist. Uh, so... Gentlemen, uh, I picked this movie because I like it quite a lot. I've seen it many times. Uh, first of all, what did you think of it, Jonathan? Oh, I really enjoyed watching it. I mean, I enjoyed it all together. I, I think it was, you know, uh, you know, but the unexpected stuff that was there and the gory stuff, the really fun gory stuff, but also it's got all this uh, sort of, you know, things about, about, you know, ritual slaughter and death and that sort of thing. And redemption that comes out of that uh, it's got a lot of psychological stuff and then a lot of very brilliantly filmed uh film things like about um got to do with uh, things like the party scenes where it does fairly much a better view of of recording what it's like to be of you know sort of documenting what that feeling is like and stuff and the level of confusion and the kinds of you know social confusion that go on under those kinds of you know, and the pressures, and I think it just did a great job of that, um, 
of, of depicting those things. And then... Uh, yeah, I could add that she's a young person who um, doesn't just not deal with the responsibility of being sort of common-law widowed by this boyfriend, but also she sort of goes to a lot of raves and clubs, and she takes pills, and she hooks up with people, and she dances, and she really um, kind of acts up and out with her pal. She kind of goes on a package holiday to Spain. She's really living the wildlife of a young person. Yeah, but the movie doesn't view those things in a bad way. I mean, I think one of the things that I, that I really enjoyed was the movie didn't really have a particularly moral point about it. It was very well depicting. It was very well putting, showing that kind of wild stuff and what goes on. So for well, me, I was a pleasure there to was, watch. There was more of that. What happened in, the, in that stuff, I think, was that she comes through it and Lana doesn't. Right? There's a moral thing that I think, that's why, I, I mean, there's two references to Dostoevsky. And in the third time I saw it, it made me think of Dostoevsky a lot. Crime and Punishment, right? Where the guy's world changes because he's done something criminal. And the two girls go together. But Lana wants to stay in that rave culture, in the little town and in the rave culture. And Morven Kalar goes through the other end of it. And you feel that, you know, this thing of, of the two crimes of cutting up his body and stealing his book um, sort of added another, you know, the whole guilt and the strangeness of it added something to her. And she ends up bigger than that. She moves out of the rape culture. I didn't think she ended. I see. I disagree. I don't think there was any guilt at all. Like, in other words, that was, that was one of the things about her. She wasn't suffering from guilt about those sorts no, that's, of things. That's right. It's the role And, of, and I also don't think, and I think, and I actually think that the technique with Lara was really a, a narrative technique, which was to make her character, her character even more singular and firm in her decision about which way she was going to go. I mean, she was getting the rewards of that. I think in Lana's case, it was really just, she had something to lose. She was still attached to the stuff over there, you know, back in, in England, in the story, you know, she has attachments back to, back to the town there, and she's not nearly as adventurous because she doesn't. She's not the kind of girl who would cut up her boyfriend. Or, you know, <laughs> nine out of ten wouldn't. Yes, at least. You know, that's why we're. That's how we're. That's how we're getting her character, Morgan Callar, to be a very special person. There, you know. I wonder. I wonder if it's if it's significant in that. I, did you read the book? You read the book. I I literally reread the book yesterday. So Morgan Callar. In the book, was she Scottish? Yes. Because uh, in the movie, she's English. Yeah. I mean, certainly by voice. I mean, the film takes place... In Oban. In Oban, which is in the west coast of Scotland, near the Hebrides, where they have a very thick accent. And uh, Kathleen McDermott, who plays Lana, is a local and has that accent. And Morburn doesn't. And you might be saying that Samantha Morton, the British actress, doesn't have it either. I don't know that they were making a commentary about it. To me, the principal difference, there's two interesting things about the book. Um, one big one is that the book is written in first person. It starts in exactly the same place, a woman next to a corpse, mm -hmm. and you spiral out from there and explain what's going on in the room and their lives, and as she ventures out into the world, we sort of see the double life, the person she's presenting, and really the person she's expected to be to her late boyfriend, who she never really is. She isn't conflicted, which is a kind of fascinating not to go that way. The film is different in that, firstly, it eschews narration. So the book supplies you with her voice and the way she speaks and thinks. Speaks to herself and thinks, um, but it's not particularly reflective, but she's very detailed about what happens. 
And so she's a much more cryptic character in the movie because you couldn't put into words what she's thinking. And so it, it externalizes a lot. And that, that's the sort of motif that goes through the entire movie. And the second thing is that in the novel, it ends with her uh, getting pregnant. Oh, yeah? Right. Uh, in which, you know, in some ways, that's the bill coming due for all of her party times. It ends by saying that she has, um, you know, uh, the child of the raves. That's what she calls her pregnancy. Yeah. And so Lynn Ramsey, uh, who did a sort of liberal amount of rewriting, as, as she does to make these books, movies, they really are very, as much if not more Lynn Ramsey than the original material, if you ask me, is that she didn't really want her paying any sort of price at the end. Mm -hmm. So to say that she's free at the end, it's almost different to say that she's finally free, right? Mm -hmm. But she's just really somebody who, um, Actually, I keep calling her abnormal. I don't mean to judge her because the film doesn't. But I think putting her next to Lana is in some ways a way to accentuate that yeah, this isn't something. your standard Scottish lass. Uh, and then, uh, as if to underlie it, Lynn Ramsey's done some great work with non-actors. Her first film, Ratcatcher, which takes place in Glasgow in the 70s, is populated with a lot of non-actors that she did a lot of work with. Uh, for the first time, she cast a notable actor, Samantha Morton, to play the lead role. However, Kathleen McDermott, who plays Lana, was a, what you'd call a non-actor. And she treated them very differently, one of whom she did extensive rehearsals with and sort of character creating, and the other one she just took as is. And a lot of the people in the movie are sort of as is people. So I think that uh, Lana's what a, oh, I hate it, a normal person would do in that situation. Neither mm -hmm. one of them are particularly reflective or deep thinkers. They're very, uh, intuitive, right. impulsive people who are just taking the opportunities that are in front of them. The energy is really not in whether Morburn's going to change, but much more this external conflict. Will the two secrets come out? And the spoiler never do, right? Nobody in the movie ever finds out what she did with the boyfriend. Uh, the, the basically, just the incidences, the, the incidents that you would normally think of in your standard film that would be the driving important factors in what the, in the film, you know, in some way that we'd be talking about, have nothing to do with it. Yes, a, it uses the same. Is there a trick in the book that the book that you're reading when you read the novel uh -huh. is the book that he wrote? No. That doesn't play that game? Doesn't play that game, no. Um, I mean, it's what's clear is it's not a book that she could have written, that she's not the type. Uh, no, the movie the movie operates on a kind in the movie she never even read it. She never reads it. Correct. Uh, <clears throat> it, so there's that. There's this there's this sort of double dramatic irony where she holds two secrets and we keep waiting for sort of one of two people, either Lana, to learn about the boyfriend who she had an affair with of sorts. Uh, or these publishers are going to figure out that she's not the writer of the book. And neither one of them does happen. But they are the sort of cards that the movie plays. At one, at one point, she tells Lana, she says Lana's going to win, and she says he's dead. Yeah. But she, don't, she doesn't believe it. Right. Yeah. She just doesn't take. Doesn't, doesn't stick. It's so unacceptable. Um, yeah, so it really is um, a, a, a movie. I, one, it's a kind of poetic style that Lynn Ramsey is going for. She's not really interested in, you know, the kitchen sink realism of a certain kind of certainly British filmmaking. 
Lynn Ramsey is a poetic filmmaker. She's not uh, concerned, certainly, with the kitchen sink style of British filmmaking. And this film was made after uh, Danny Boyle's film of Train Spotting. That was a sort of different take on that kind of Scottish literature that time. Lynn Ramsey's movies uh, don't obey normal rules. For somebody to watch Morburn Cowler and say, you couldn't chop up a dude's body with kitchen implements and you couldn't bury him with a trowel. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's not really the point. The, the, the fact, you know, whether, I believe the advance that she gets for the novel in the movie is like 100,000 pounds, which is significantly more than she's offered in the novel. It's not quite a realistic number, nor is the actual way it goes down. Like, can she just get the check so that she can continue to explore the world and not sort of evade consequences of any kind? I, I don't think the, I think the movie is designed to keep you from asking those questions or allowing them to keep you from believing that this Morburn is a person. Because the movie really centers this actress, Samantha Morton, in it. And you just, it's a very slow paced movie. It's not long, 97 minutes, but it's a very slow paced movie. And you just find yourself looking at her in intimate mm -hmm. moments and they aren't even truly moments of dilemma you just watch her sitting in the bathtub or staring off into space or talk on payphone to a random person you're sort of waiting for her to sort of reveal who she is and she does give you she gives you who she is really by never changing and never feeling guilty and never really you, i thought she gives you who she is but when she answers that random call in the yeah. station right yeah and they and somebody says the other guy is asking for somebody and she says no it's not me and he says who are you or something like that right you could you don't hear it but she starts answering who she is now who norm if, some, if a random payphone answered and asked you who you are you wouldn't answer would you right you'd skip it but she starts spelling her name so she you know, and it's that means that she's that's where she is on the i am m-o-r-v-e-r yeah she's a it's such a funny movie in that it you're stuck with the name her name is morvern and she spells it and people mispronounce it several times it's like the closest thing to a true joke in the movie is right. just people getting that name wrong um what else did you notice or like about it, Jonathan? Well, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing because there's this beautiful sort of, you know, travelogue end of it when she gets out of Scotland, uh, the, you know, in the places that she goes there, you know. And, and, and I, I think that uh, that was shot very interestingly. But the thing that I like about it mostly is the parts of it that are a reiteration of the sequence of the butchering of the of the boyfriend and it's the great which which has to do with the pamplona sequence uh similarly the one of course you know i can't i have a soft spot for the fact that they get in a ride with a, a taxi driver in the middle of nowhere who's blasting tarafti haidukes i can't i mean you know because I, <laughs> I just love that band and i can't believe that the place that they decided to put that in the movie is hilarious it's a bit of comic relief and then and then and then everyone is laughing for a moment but those things are great i mean the fact that there's the, just the fact of the of the the of the amount of adventure letting go and just the, and just the persistent you know uh you know the fact that she is she is somebody who's totally able to let go and she's, she's self-composed so nothing really damages her she's stronger than every incident that she gets in which is the reason for why Lana can't take anything because she's easily manipulated by the by the by the 
by the by the rough and tumble of what are essentially like you see there. I mean, the thing I liked about it is ultimately you're dealing with a parable for me that it, you know it's very simple. If you're talking about a kind of poetry, it's about sacrifice and a redemption that comes from sacrifice. She sacrifices the guy first. He sacrifices himself. Then she sort of washes herself of him by then redoing that, then burying him for when in this very crazy manner in the earth in Scotland, you know, that she tries to get to get to get down like that. But she get, ends up in Europe, and and you know, first you see the scene with all the kids having their basic British holiday scene, in, in, in you know, in a place like they go to, where more Vern Callar again, she ends up in these situations, but she's completely in another kind of, uh, I don't know if it's a maturity paradigm, because I'm not sure how mature it is to chop up people, but you know, but, but at the same time, there's like, you know, in terms of the sorts of people and the troubled people that she's coming across in the hotel already, you know, which she's beyond having to deal with that. So then she puts the walk out. You know, they did, you know, they take off and her, her girlfriend's going, what, what, what? And she's like, I'm out of here. You know what, I don't care. And it's not because she's really troubled. It's almost like it's bored, you know, Enough with that. Goodbye to all that. So she takes off at the hotel, and then you end up with the Pamplona scene. Well, there's nothing going on in Pamplona except a bullfight, the people that are running through. Once again, she can handle it. Her friend is bewildered by it, and she, you know, she gets in these. And any, any scene it is, she's going to skate through fine. She doesn't worry about what the way is that she's going to handle it. She's quite composed in whatever the scenario is. When they're in the middle of nowhere, walking around through a field, and her friend says we're lost. It's clear she doesn't feel lost. She thinks she's in the right place. She wants to be you know, out in the middle of a field with uh, getting rid of her luggage, and you know, and and then there's another phone book, phone booth scene, of course, which is a reiteration. So it's doing reiterations of those things that eventually are kind of m maneuvers that, you know, are, you know, she's shedding layers. You know, she's just becoming more free as a result of those engagements and there's no and i like it because there it is just ritual stuff like that and there isn't i mean i detest being led through moral stuff and and actually and, and it's funny because the dostoevsky thing is a red herring because they make you think that it's going to be a moral thing by bringing up dostoevsky twice except that it's not it's the opposite they bring it up because they're making fun of her boyfriend who's a writer Right. I mean, this is a it's fantastic. It has nothing to do with it. It's just, it's just it's like, it's I, not I still think it. there's a reference, even though it's an ironic reference. Oh, absolutely. By I the mean, way, to do a little nitpicking, it probably wasn't Pamplona. Because they start off the town they're in was Almeria, which is way in the south of Spain, where I once thought of moving to because it's very got very cheap apartments in it. Yeah. And uh, you can't get to Pamplona in a taxi cab from Almeria. It's hundreds and hundreds yes, of and miles. Yes, and they do have... They, they were probably at Ronda. It was up on the plateau, and they were probably at Ronda, which is another bullfighting town. It's a maybe bullfighting town, but I'm not really sure what the, whether whether it's the same with the red handkerchiefs and the, and the white clothes. I mean, I know that they have a number of those uh, of those uh, of those ritualized festivals, but the San Fernando even, even with Taraf de Dukes on the radio, you couldn't get to Pamplona in a taxi. Not, not, it would take days. I'm not sure locations were that realistic. I mean, we. I would yeah. sort of go back to my previous point and say it's a kind of poetic fantasy right. based on a real-life situation. Like, her story before the movie starts is that she works in a supermarket, you know, that she is in a relationship with a guy who probably owes her an apology, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that she doesn't have enough money. And she's probably never been where they go. And so 
she and then what happens to her at the beginning of the movie is somebody doing something very you know Len Ramsey said in an interview that's very selfish and vain to sort of dramatically take your life and then force your le- make your legacy the job of the person who survives you and so she she actually is actually oppressed at the moment the movie starts she may have already read this note or maybe hasn't but discovers this person it's Christmas of course perfect yeah well that's so a- then she reacts against all of that and then goes so far as to like take a fair amount of money and blow it and then earn an even more a larger amount of money that he left her and then sort of not even go back at the time that I, even she based on what everything we know about her would think well sooner or later a person has to go home and face the music you'll get caught for what you did with the body or you'll get you know exposed as the person who write this book or you'll run out of money and none of those things happen in this movie and the way it ends sort of in the it ends with her being that same sort of I don't want to say emotionless, but kind of affectless person in a party situation, mm. right? She's just around a lot of a, a lot of really uh, Bacchanalian influences, and she indulges all of them. But she's really just kind of, uh, you know, there's something I say to my students, and I, I, I hope I haven't already said it on this podcast, which is that you know, when you see a character-driven story like this, it's like uh, you know when you go to the optometrist. And uh, they put you behind these glasses that you can't see anything. There's something on the other side and you have no idea what it is. And then uh, basically through a series of choices, better like this, better like this, A or B, six or seven. Before or after. Yeah, yeah before or after. I yeah, a great so piece of music. You go through all of that and at the end of that experience, you see whatever it is on the other side in completely tight focus. And to me, that's what character-driven stories do. You meet a random person lying on the ground next to a corpse. And every decision she makes tells you who she is. And in her case, she's just like picking none of the above on almost every choice you can make. She comes up with an original way to deal with every situation. Like, you know, who, you know, your your boyfriend commits suicide, who would you tell first? And the answer is nobody, right? right. <laughs> like, what what would you do next? I'll cut up the... So everything she does is counterintuitive, to say the least. Well, you know, the, there, is, there are these things, though, that are thrown in. Yes, they are counterintuitive, but on the other hand, it's justified for us because... And it's the thing that makes the movie fine, is that because he did leave her in the lurch like that and it was theoretically suicide, it's fine for us that... Yeah. That this is what it seems justified that that's what the, that's the way she's behaving because why the fuck not if this had happened to you? But then let's discuss. There's another level of this which isn't just playing character based because they do keep leaving around these very funny things. The first thing that she does is open a bunch of presents, and in the presents is the gear to travel with. Right. And it's just more like the Wizard of Oz. He dies, yeah. leaves her, leaves her assistant to make money with, and the gear to travel with, the jacket, leather jacket, the lighter, the lighter. You know what I mean? So she's the first thing is the equipment. You know, he, what's going to happen in the adventure? It's like James Bond. Here's your equipment well, for your little, you know, for your adventure out. So, I mean, this can <laughs> lead us to <laughs> this can lead us to it to me our last major topic relating to this movie, which is that uh, the single uniting stylistic motif of the movie. Is that he leaves her a Walkman and a mixtape that he's made? Yes. Her, right. Right. So there's two things. One, in the book, he doesn't leave her a tape, but they do have a lot of mixtapes around mixtapes. So she's constantly telling you what she's listening to, uh-huh. and she's very, very specific. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
this is about to shock you, but among other people, the book is dedicated to, it will not surprise you that one of the people the book is dedicated to is Holger Joke, who is the creative force behind Can, the German, the Krautrock band uh -huh. that has, I think, one or two songs in the movie and there's a solo piece of his. So it turns out that somebody whose music inspired the book is also all over the movie. Mm -hmm. The book is also dedicated to Peter Brotzman. Oh, <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Who's a you know uh, avant-garde jazz saxophonist um, whose work does not appear in the movie. And so, one uh, in the book, there's a lot of music, but in the movie, he leaves her a cassette tape and a, something to listen to it on. And so, he has essentially curated the listening experience that she's going to have through all of her adventures and us too. And so, Jonathan, because I always want to talk about movie music with you. This is a movie that has no score. All of the music is sourced. It's all been licensed because it's clearly suggested to do it that way from the book. Mm -hmm. And so it gives you uh, the entire palette of their musical taste. And then they cleared what they could clear for this movie. What did you think of the music choices? Uh, they seemed just like that. It was very obvious. It wasn't anything really to concentrate on. It was just for the characterization. In other words, it made sense in terms of the time period, in terms of where they were going. And it made, and uh, you know, it was enjoyable. They were, they were breaks as a music was supposed to be a diversion for people that are using this diversion. They're using it for entertainment, for, for an escapism, similar to having a rave. It was very good, even for the debauchery, or you got a bit of escapism from whatever the, whatever the scenes are as soon, yeah. as, they, as soon as they deal with that music. But the music is quite intense because it's always it's always slapped on to what are, again, I would say, very uh, rituals, ritualistic sacrificial scenarios. There's the party, which this shot that way. It involves everything from blood to, you know, to peeing, to people having sex all at once with a party and a whole lot of confusion and drugs, everything you would ha you would want to have there. So then, then you have a musical shot. You don't have any any music that isn't that doesn't that isn't going on. So it happens again in Europe. This is a disco scene. It happens again uh, in, when you get in the cab and they have a big unknown. They're going to take a cab in the middle of the unknown with a with, you know with the, some sort of guy. It happens there because this is a, this is another scene of letting go. It happens in Pamplona. And so I think that they were very good because those were the periods, those were all points where, for me, even though that would be something that would be escapism, on the other hand, it's the main thing that music is there. The, mo the most non-bourgeois uses of music that there are in the world, almost everything that's happened after that, you know, for, you know, I have my basic, you know, short story of the history of music that goes, here, I'll give it away for the crowd, but basically, you know, you have a big ritual sacrifice and they're going to cut the head off the virgin and take out her heart. And, you know, it's Jerome's going to be getting more powerful. And then they do it and they cut off the head and the heart comes out and then covered in blood and everybody's gotten really high. And then they go back away. And then, you know, a rather wealthy person from the village comes to the musicians while they're packing up and says, you know, that was really amazing. Uh, my wife was wondering if you could do that for our daughter's birthday party, but maybe you could tone it down a little bit. <laughs> and, you know, that's my history of music, of what goes on with, 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 how, with how music is always watered down out of that and, and what, what, you know, what I hate about most of the ways that people want it now, which is they always want everything watered down. It was always a little too intense, but we'd like to have it again for our party, but we don't want to have a party where the sacrifice is going on. Right. Because our daughter's going to... And so in this, in this movie, they didn't do that. Right. It was all brought in for the most intense I, I mean, stuff. And, there's this you know. sort of mixtape motif, right? So in Reservoir Dogs, 
there's a DJ character who's spinning the hits of the 70s that creates both the sort of retro mood of that crime film and then also provides a sort of spike in irony when a guy tortures somebody while listening to some cheerful 70s song. And then even contemporarily, they actually, they didn't take it for more of a color, but there's the Walkman motif in The Guardians of the Galaxy, a big Marvel movie about aliens, in which the one Earthling character uh, has a connection to his mother because he has a cassette of 70s hits that he plays again and again. And so it's really a kind of emotional delivery system. In this one, I think because the music is, um, music choices are, I would call, eclectic. They're not, uh, they're not, certainly not all the music choices on the cassette in the movie, which was also the same as the soundtrack album back when you would purchase the CD. You could listen to those songs in the order of the movie. Oh, yeah. uh, but, you know, they're not all contemporaneous with like 90s UK, like no. Candace from the 70s, et cetera, et cetera. It was more like someone who has an interesting record collection made this cassette. And then Taraf de Hadouks is new. It's not from him. It's not from their world. It's fantastic. Everybody who knows Taraf de Hadouks knows they're the greatest band alive. And then the very distinct... Oh, and then we should also mention the other sort of the ironic use of Velvet Underground and Nico, I'm Sticking With You, which mm-hmm. is the song for when she, you know, dismembers or cuts up the corpse. Yes. Which is, you know, textbook irony, but really, really well done. Uh, I think Velvet Underground are really funny but that was that it's a was frequent really... touchstone for a kind of independent film everybody loves the velvet underground particularly because hardly anybody loved them the first time around yeah well that scene was really funny for me i mean it just it really did remind me of you know of, of, of i don't know goodfellas meets sweeney todd it was pretty damn funny and then of course really, the music cue do. that you cannot forget i bet any amount of money you could tell me the last song in the movie no i can't Remind Bob, you could do it too. What was well, I? I can't believe I lost passing. all the money in my pocket. It's the mamas and the papas. Oh, oh yes, of course. Yeah, oh right. yeah. Where'd right. my memory go? I totally forgot. This yeah, is dedicated yeah, yeah, to yeah. the one Absolutely. I love, That's which was chosen. Love, really, sure. it's not on the mixtape. It's the song that was chosen really <clears throat> to be the sort of stylistic opposite of the music that he had right. left for her. It's not something that would have been on that tape, and it's also. It's she's in a musical setting. She's in a sort of club setting, and instead of hearing that, you know, that music, we get her music that's in her head, and it's uh, very dramatically lit. And I remember the first time I saw this movie, that time where you just don't know what you're in store for, you know, and that's such a haunting ending because it's just it's exactly where we leave her. We're not there to see her change as a person, be discovered, get comeuppance, run out of money, return home. You you know, like I was saying before, the movie ends with her in as clear focus as we're ever going to get of her. Yeah. Which is exactly why the movie is not supposed to end with her getting pregnant. Yeah. Like, it's just not at all supposed to end with her changing as a character or the plot changing her circumstances. So what, it, what makes it a real, uh, it seems sort of, lazy to call it a director's piece, but because the plot is not conflict driven, right? <laughs> like right. who's the antagonist, right? There's uh and the character doesn't grow and change. Uh she's just very concrete, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, it's like how the they heck? Ask, ask her what's your next idea for the novel? And she doesn't answer and then yeah. says, I work in a supermarket. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then later on somebody asks her, what do you like about you know, she, she likes things. And what do you like? And she said, I like the ants. And 
She does like You know what we didn't mention? What's that? We've got another chapter to do here. There's no men in it. There's absolutely no men in it. Men are only extras. Well, uh, you know, it's a fair point. If you were to list in order of importance uh, 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 of the living people, there's Morvern, there's Lana, there's the grandmother, there's the grandmother, thank you. Uh Uh, And, you know, there's two publishers, a man and a woman. But uh, But he's he's not like a character that interacts. He's just there about the money. There's just so many tools that the story doesn't use, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't doesn't try... raise tension by closing the noose around her well no it didn't i mean but the thing about it is it it didn't it doesn't have to because as you you started off with the with the the key to why that is it's a kind of poetry you know this is a thing about films is why even be mystified by that there's there's an over judgment that films have to carry on a certain way and in a way this kind of played a game about it without being very intellectual about it but if you start with the person that's dead on the floor which happens commonly in movies, it always is supposed to be a murder. And the only other place I can consider immediately where it's a comedic effect is like the real Inspector Hound, you know, where you start off with a body on the floor and everybody's just walking around the body and you're like, what is mm-hmm. the, what is this nonsense? And there's two guys going about, where's Hound? But, you know... In, Remember the but, trouble with Harry, but, the Hitchcock film? But, yep. <laughs> but why? Because in, in, that case, in, in that case, because Tom Stoppard is playing a game with is it really important to the story whether the guy whether the guy is dead? But what the irony is is that this the third wall thing and whether he's there on the answer. In this particular case, it's that the person that's dead is a suicide, and does it matter who he is? Well, sort of profoundly in a way, but not really. Not really. It's just kind of it's just kind of the driver for how you get the story kicked off. Like, you know how you further characterize the woman. You know, Morburn. The closest thing and, to a significant male character. Is the dead guy whose name you don't even know? That's and he what, ends up being cut up. That's, never that's sort he does of what have I'm a name. He's named James on his manuscript. On the yeah. manuscript, but, you see it. But, but that's really it's 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 really probably just because for the dramatic purpose of having it be erased and replaced. We yeah. don't know much about him as a person when he's described to her by Lana as somebody that she hooked up with. You could say There's nothing this, particularly specific it, or distinguished about him. But very no other clear. male character has any impact on the two uh, women at no, all. No, that's not true. And I think, yeah, I think it no, it isn't. I'm about <laughs> to get into it. And the reason for that is because they are making a point that they're all a pain in the ass. So the first man that she comes across is in the pub, who's the older guy, who says, Morvern, what have you been doing? Who are you? And it's a bit of a pain in the ass because she can't talk to him, doesn't want to say. Then they go out to Europe and they have the scenes in the hotel with the with the kid with the men that are completely disturbed or really either Random, too weird. Name those people, right? Well, kind of, but they have incidences with them, but they happen to be men, and it, it's, it brings up this kind of weird, you know, intensity. And they are kind; they have a kind of baggage that Morvern is not interested in getting into with them. So the men are that way, unless unless they're completely humorous, like the gypsy guy, and they're like, "That's brilliant." They're fine with that. Or like the strange old man that's very visually coming up the street in the, in the town that is not Pamplona, whatever, whichever, someplace where they're having a bullfight. It's and nice plateau, yeah, yeah, I mean, whatever. Anyway. Maybe, what, maybe, I think it's not important, but I'm just saying it's 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 one of those festivals. Like, it's the same same principle as everything. 
There's one man you haven't mentioned, and it sort of completes the thing that you're talking about, which is the man that she exposes herself to on the passing boat. Exactly. So, which an amazing scene, right? Because that, yeah, that, that's yeah, well, that's what sets yeah. that's what sets the tone of the whole. So it's not that there aren't men; it's that maybe it's because she's going from this one man who was literally trying to keep a hold on her through the afterlife by making her his executor and sort of a curator of his eternal reputation. Uh, and not only does she like make him disappear, she, you know, she she's a she's a kind of Teflon to every other male in the movie. Just and she remember the one she know. goes in when she goes into Lana's room and Lana's in bed with a guy. Yeah. And she says, "Let's go," and she ignores him. That guy's transparent yeah. to her. She never mentions him or looks at him. Yeah, but that's th him. that's important feature. I think there's plenty of men in the movie. It's just that the point of them is that they're a kind of baggage. That okay. you know, that is that they, they, they are put in there very significantly. There's a number of them, but the, the position is that's what they are. Well, and then I'll you know, modify a little. I'll modify a little. They're not in there as characters, as individuals, they're in there as images or background. Yeah, but everything, everything in there is it's, it's why it's a character thing, is everything is in there to heighten and drive what the sense of Morburn Calloway's character is and why that's singular. So it makes sense that way. I mean, if you were constructing, oh, this by the way, this kind of movie is a lot easier for me to get my head around. We'll be getting to more movies that are that, that have a poetic nature like that. And I happen, for me, I happen to go more for that than any kind of stuff because I'm not caught up in the idea of narrative problems or what people's reasons have to be because I think it's nonsense anyway. And I think film is the greatest depictor of the fact that the only reason that it's become conditional that way that that movies have to have a drive towards that is is anathema to actually what movies are people are inventing narrative out of something that definitely shows chaos it shows the fact that there's this connection everywhere and that we have to go through massive uh, massive efforts of editing and setup and everything in order to make reality or even on film look like rea look like what we want reality to look like versus stories so movies that don't really go that way I find much easier to deal with. It's, right. it's relaxing for my I, sense I of life. I see a story in here, even though it's a simple line. It's a yeah, simple I, line, but it's a story. But it's interspersed. She makes images work with the story that you wouldn't expect. Remember the one with her hand in a window? Was it a train window or something like that? It's a very interesting, yeah. wonderfully colored film where the frame is dark around it and there's a blue sky behind the window. And she's watching her hand, the, the image and shape of her hand in the... Right. brightness of the window which you know that doesn't push a plot or anything except yeah. it tells you something about her mind the way she watches simple and concrete things so lynn ramsey did come from a photography background she was a photographer on her way to becoming a filmmaker mm -hmm. so she has a natural i mean every good filmmaker has a knack for imagery mm -hmm. but it's not at all surprising that it's a kind of discovery of the imagery uh, in the act of shooting the movie, she's not known for a lot of storyboarding. And then, you know, there's a, I was about to call it a love scene, a sex scene where Morburn actually hooks up with that one guy, right? Yeah. They're alone in the room. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, uh, I'm i always trying to get data on how people shoot. And she said, you know, I've never done that kind of a scene before. And every way I imagined staging it felt mechanical. Like, oh, this is, I'm shooting a sex scene. I have to do this. I have to do that. So I think she ended up clearing the room of everybody except for her, maybe absolutely essential people, and then gave the two performers freedom to do it and just allowed it to be what it was, which is something that you would do if you were a photographer. If 
your job was to sort of shoot two people in some clothes, you could go in there with the sort of script and a series of takes that you needed as a, a shot list, so to speak, or you could have something occur and try and capture it, which is, I think, something that, uh, again, it makes for beautiful images. It, it, it doesn't inherently equate with narrative. So I think, you know, uh, Lynn Ramsey is pretty, she's on the short list, and I, I think uh, it's sad that her, she has a new film coming out this spring, and it's only her fourth feature film ever in 20 years. So I think that uh, it's, first of all, it's an event. The fact that three of her four films were literary adaptations and then two films, there were two films that she almost directed it didn't work out. One was The Lovely Bones, uh, the Al Siebold novel that ended up getting made by uh, Peter Jackson. Another one is a movie called Jane Got a Gun, a Western with uh, Natalie Portman. It's on Netflix now. And you think like, I don't know. I wonder if it's a tough road to hoe where that kind of storytelling that you like to do uh, abuts the problem of existent literary property, right? So if she was writing original scripts like Ratcatcher, there wouldn't be anybody to have an alternative interpretation of the way to do it. I would just watch anything Lynn Ramsey made because I think everything she does is worth watching. Um, but if you were a fan of, uh, you know, if she'd gotten a hold of Gone Girl, some hit beach read, you know, there would be a certain amount of attention on whether you're going to be servicing the book properly. And uh, what makes her a filmmaker and an artist is that her job is not to service the book. I don't know if Alan Warner liked the adaptation. I hope he likes the movie, but he might also feel like that's not my Morvern, but I don't think it should be. So I think that she really uh, made a movie that really belongs to her more than it belongs to the novelist, which I don't know if I'd say that about Train Spotting or something else. I mean, there's books, there's a lot of books like that. I mean, a lot of films have been made out of books that are kind of like that. Where they I say films a lot of times. Either the writer has to decide I sell it, I don't care, I don't look anymore, right? Like Elmore Leonard said, or um, doesn't like it. Like um, Rowling, what's her name? J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling, who went crazy about the movie has to be authentic to her. Yeah. To her total fantasy. Her total fantasy, so Spielberg quit. You know, it's another great photography in the movie, just in passing. Maybe just because I know the territory, I know the landscape there, so does Jonathan. Um, when she went out in the hills of Boban, of West Scotland out there, and it's just some short shots for a minute. Of course, they're great scenes, but she got the lighting and everything just absolutely perfect to make these these scenes really great. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, that there's a certain kind of thing where... Um, I don't think it does have to be you know it's a good it's a good film in that it doesn't it doesn't have to have it, I mean it shows all the things that a film doesn't have to have really and works very plainly it's not without being heady so you know so that's so that really works good by the way people you can if you have an Amazon Prime membership it comes with it so you can watch it yes oh, yeah, we Amazon? should say that it's yeah, going Amazon Prime it's good Amazon Prime, Prime. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime, which everybody should really have. I had to. Uh, I had a DVD that I rescued from a closing blockbuster. That's good. So I got to watch the featurettes and such. Anyway, I think it's. Uh, I think it's good. You know, I'm, just to get back to that idea, you know, there's a lot of poetic movies. I mean, we're about to do one, right? So the next thing up is is the, is the Agnes Varda movie. So and uh, again, you're going to be into a film that doesn't have to uh, that conforms to nothing. Well, I mean, I, I don't know, almost in conclusion, I'd just say that every movie we're going to pick to talk about is a movie that 
real purpose of which is to start a discussion. Uh, that's so, a good idea. So Morbid Tower is not a movie that's designed <laughs> to answer your questions. It's no. actually there to sort of send you out into the lobby. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I remember when I saw it, I was by myself and I went out and I didn't really have anybody to talk to. So I'm glad to.